Hey, welcome to the show tonight. It's a great Monday night. Cooling down a little bit. We're down to, I think, 95 here. It is what it is. Anyway, my name is Charlotte. I'm your host. I'll be your host for the next hour or so. And uh, I am also the owner and operator of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento at www.californiahaunts.org. And if you want to find more information out about this great radio show, visit our website at www.californiahaunts.org. Oh, I'm sorry. W- <laughs> Too many California haunts. www.californiahauntsradio.com. See how I can get confused? It's hard. I'm in my 50s and, you know, it gets scattered. Anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, we have a great guest for you tonight. It's our good friend, Jared Murphy. We're going to be talking about aliens and technology. And, and, and not aliens, I'm sorry. Aliens did not create technology. It's going to be one of those nights. And I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why I'm kind of scatterbrained today. Something really cool kind of happened to me today, and uh, it's something I didn't expect. You know, it, kind of, it was one of those moments, those uh, Han Solo moments when Han Solo says, you know, I didn't think the day was going to go like this. Or this day wasn't planned to go like this. Um, I've been having some problem with my front security door, uh, my front security screen, and uh, it's like the doorknob would get pushed back, to, or the, the, the striking thing would get pushed back in the door, and the door would not lock. And so sometimes when I would go out to go somewhere, I'd have to pull on the doorknob to, to pull that, that strike to kick in. Anyway, last night, because I, I, I use a blower, an attic blower at night to cool my house down. And so I also, I also you know, I have to open that door. But I also have a uh, deadbolt on there. So I pulled, and I pulled it shut. Of course, it didn't lock through, so I, I put the deadbolt on. But I had it set on lock, you know, on, on the doorknob itself. So anyway... Um, this morning I get up and was, I had to do some stuff out front and it wasn't a lot. So I left my cell phone in the house and it, I didn't have any tools really except yard tools. And I go out front and the minute the door shut, I knew what happened. I was locked out of my house and I stood there for a couple minutes and I thought, well, what the heck am I going to do now? Cause I've got double pane windows and there's no way to get in through the windows or anything on this house. So, um, because the doorknob was loose, I figured, I thought maybe I, I I could knock the doorknob off itself. So I had a baseball bat outside. So I'm beating on the doorknob, you know, trying to trying to get the doorknob to snap off. And I almost had it, but just didn't want to come. So um, I have a bunch of new neighbors on my block, and they, they've been there about a year, maybe a little longer. I'm, I'm a person who likes to keep to myself, so I'm not one of these people that bugs the neighbors. You know, I'm there for being out front for a wave or whatever, and that's it. So I finally got the nerve up, went across the street, and a very nice family, very, you know, very nice people. And he was on a conference call, but she said she would 
ask him if he would help me out with the door on. And so he came over, but he didn't have any tools. So he said, I want to introduce you to someone else. They have tools. I said, okay, fine. Went walking down this other house, got some tools from them. Very nice. Again, very, again, very nice people. He came back to my house and uh, said, oh, I need a couple more things. So I'm going to go home and grab them. So he went home. And then a few minutes later, his wife comes, says that he didn't have the extra two tools that he needed. So she says, but what you might want to do is go over to these other neighbors on the other side. And I said, well, I don't, okay, I'll do it. You know, I don't have a lot of choice. So being the shy person that I am, I went over there. The guy came out. He said, sure, no problem. He came over, fixed my, got, got the doorknob off, got back in my house and, you know, I locked everything up again, you know, give the tools back, whatever. Thank everybody. It just goes to show you, you know, I, I never really talked to these neighbors. At least I know who they are now. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's still some good in this world with what, you know, with the arguments that are going on online and then, you know, people arguing about this, that, and this thing. There's still some good people in this world that will come and help you. And that made me feel really good. In fact, after I had gone to Walmart and gotten another doorknob and, um, excuse me, I was in the process of installing it. The neighbor came all the way from across the street to ask me if I needed any help, you know, if I was doing okay with it and all that. So that was very nice. So it just goes to show you that there's still some good people in this world, you know, and sometimes it's clo they're closer than you think they are. Anyway, um, we got a great show lined up tonight. Uh, like I said, my friend Jared Murphy's going to be on. Our good friend Jared Murphy's going to be here. And aliens did not create Asian technology. And we'll hear what he has to say. He probably has some updates for us. And so I'm excited to talk with him. So without further ado... Let's bring on Jared. Hello. How's it going? It's better now. <laughs> Never stand out in front of your I, house for I, an I, hour. After your after your story, I don't really feel like there's a. I remember locking my keys in my car for the first time. That was the worst. <laughs> it's just crazy, and when I knew it, I mean, it was like. I instantly knew what had happened the minute I heard, I, I, you know, I heard the door shut, and I was like, "Oh my god, I don't have my cell phone. <laughs> I can't get back in my house. What to do? You know that everybody's at work, and you're thinking nobody's home. What am I going to do? So yeah, it, it's the worst. <laughs> um, uh, that's the that. What a way to start, as far as. Uh, life right now right <laughs> yeah oh it's murphy's law oh well i forgot about murphy's law to see murphy murphy's law i am a murphy i can promise you there is a law i try not to fight it and i've been very lucky in respecting it i haven't had to throw one virgin in a volcano yet awesome awesome uh, i mean science is out right now so i figured that that should be my next step Right. For any problem, we should just get back to throwing virgins in volcanoes. There you go. That would it take seems, care of it. It seems to be the right choice. I mean, science doesn't work. <laughs> the um, nobody thinks science works anymore. I don't understand that. I am um, I am two weeks out. Our ex our preliminary expeditionary trip to the Grand Canyon is happening. Whoa! Uh, the first to the sixth, I will be going to plan the expeditionary uh, work. We will be going into the canyon. We'll be going to the rim where we very much, uh, this is myself and Rex from Leak Project. Okay. Uh, we will be meeting and uh, we have been planning. I've been talking. In fact, your, yours is one of the first shows I started talking about it, but I'll be at the Grand Canyon. Um, 
on reservation land, we will be doing um, some preliminary investigations as to where we would bring a climbing team and where we would be going to look for the GE Kincaid cave. Right on. Uh, for people that don't know what that is. Uh, yeah. So once upon a time, 1909, there is a single story in a um, local paper that says a guy who is working not for the Smithsonian, but with someone who is working for the Smithsonian, who is also not with the Smithsonian <laughs> to speed this up. And he claimed that they went up, you know, essentially a portion of the Grand Canyon, uh, Marble Canyon, and that solo he had found from a uh, sightline uh, a cave about 18 1600 feet down from the rim a couple thousand feet off the ground that he had found what uh, turned out to be filled with um, mummies uh, artifacts it, uh, you name the movie essentially that he had located a clear Egyptian burial within this cave system and bonus that was level one not only were there hieroglyphs but then there was a long long passage that led to what was essentially an underground city whoa and and so the but of course there's a number of debunking things to be said about it one it was a story done on the F april fools mm -hmm. uh two uh there's a number of other legit finds within the canyon and the Smithsonian itself has always denied that GE Kincaid, Armstrong, the other associates did not exist and or they have no record of that. Uh, ironically, though, there are uh, many expeditions by the Smithsonian. There have been many sponsored activities into the canyon. And what's interesting is, is that Carlsbad has always been considered where the most caves are in concentration within the United States. However, it's said that there are actually more caves in the Grand Canyon. And what's very interesting is that no one has any uh, record of it. There is no splunking. There is no uh, evidence that says, hey, um, here's a map of everything we've looked at that's natural or not natural. Because one of the statements from GE Kincaid was that the cave appeared to be rock cut, that it was uh, formed by man. And all along, you know, the premise for it's not aliens worse, it's us or not aliens.com, you know, the point isn't that there's not space traveling anthropologists mm -hmm. or just bored advanced aliens. The, the issue is there is so much evidence in the ground, like we've talked about a few times now, that uh, we have to get our heads around the fact that we rose much higher in technology than where we're at. Yeah, and that book currently is available only in audio. I've been releasing chapters slowly onto the members area of notaliens.com. Uh, the book is in a revision. I'm hoping it'll be back out with a new publisher in the next few months. Cool. And that uh, uh, that's in talks right now with my agent in London. And then I'm working on three more books. But as of now, uh, you can certainly listen to the audio. I do an inclusive read just for those listening. If you do um, get it, it means that basically while you're listening to the audio, I describe the actual uh, captions and the pictures for those who are visually um, not enabled equally for, for sight. So I describe the photos read the captions and then continue reading, which I think is helpful when you're driving a truck or whether you're just someone who, you know, you just don't read things. I think it's always been difficult that they don't include the photos, but 
Uh, I'm also working on new books with Jen Deo, the archaeologist. And so we're, we're getting there. There's a lot of research going on. And that's one of the things I've been really excited about finally bringing to people now is that we are uh, continuing expeditionary work. And so there is a trip that's planned for Peru. Uh, that one is much more complex, and we're hoping to do work while we're there. But the expedition to the Grand Canyon is a two-parter. Uh, for us to, even even if we can't get deep into a cave, the issue is, can we get uh, to a entrance or a location that appears to be rock cut? Can we photograph without doing much splunking at all? And just, you know, photograph what appears to be abandoned correct height of civilizations that would be 2,000 years ago or 1,600 years ago. Uh, the estimations about the G.E. Kincaid cave was that uh, there was artifacts found. And the, and the problem is there's so much misinformation out there now. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it says, oh, yeah, they found mummies, and it was this kind of mummy. It was this person. It was this pharaoh. Or it was this high-level person from Egypt, and it was... I don't even think the details are worth getting into because they're all fiction or they're they're hearsay. They're not. Uh, there's no record or evidence. All we have is this single article, and yes, there are many points within the Grand Canyon that have been labeled Egyptian. And so the interesting thing is that it's some of the indigenous people that have named it that at first. I was under the impression that I figured, you know, King Tut, uh, early, late 1800s, 19, early 1900s archaeology, I thought they just got very enthusiastic and started naming things in the Grand Canyon Egyptian. Turns out that, no, quite a bit of it is actually indigenous. And it's like, where did they start coming up with Egyptian words? How, how did that happen? And there are many evidences that the Romans, um, Romerica, it's a fictional work, but, you know, Dave Brody just put Romerica out. And that's his 14th book. And it's it's fiction, but it's historical fiction. And it's it's very possible the Romans came here. We know the Templars did. We know the Vikings did. We know the Phoenicians did. Uh, this may not be something that's comfortable for standard academia to talk about, but the Grand Canyon is an example of a space that, although it keeps gutting itself out, we have to look at where would be the society on the planet that I'm describing, like in my book, I worked really hard on a map that shows the world 60,000, really right around Mount Toba's explosion. So we're looking at 75,000 plus or minus to 100,000 years ago. You could argue that the map that I put in the book could have been indefinite from uh, pre-Younger Dry, so pre-12,000 years ago. Um, and there's a good portion of that map that actually was above water even six and 8,000 years ago. But you could you can look at the map that's in my book and say, hey, this is what the world really looked like. This is where the shorelines really were. This is where people could have been living from Doggerland to uh, different coastlines on the U.S. and in near, near Cuba. And all of it shows that there was massive land masses uh, that would definitely indicate a larger and broader uh, scope to search for archaeological remains, which every time we go underwater, it's not hey, well, we know the city of Alexandria sunk. We're not talking about dynastic peoples in the last 6,000 years. We're talking oh, who was in the city that was off the coast of Cuba that couldn't have been above water less than 60,000 years ago. And so when we look at those coastlines and then we look at the Grand Canyon and we and we fill it back up, you know, where the river would have been, 
-hmm. how far up or down would it have been a reasonable location for a civilization outside of the Pueblo? Uh, uh, well, there's there's about Anasazi. There, there's like six or eight tribes that we credit with having been in the Grand Canyon in the last 12,000 years. I'm not talking about indigenous Americans. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about a higher, more advanced uh builder society, megalithic construction society that would have been living near or indigenous peoples may have lived near, just like we have tribes on the planet now that we leave them alone. They live in the desert. They live in the jungle. They they do not have iPhones. They have no social security number. They are tribes. They have nothing. They just, they live, they eat, they breathe, and they don't have healthcare. But we have another, uh, um, you know, another story that we're unpacking finally and this, this means that, say the G.E. Kincaid cave, for me, it's an allegory. It's like Atlantis. So we get so hung up on, were there Atlanteans? And, and, we, and, and then for a hot minute, I felt like a couple, about three years ago, people finally started saying, look, there was clearly a more advanced society on the planet. Let's just mm -hmm. call the Atlanteans that society. You know, there was, and then people like to, it, we're, we were so obsessed for so many years because I'm in that generation that grew up with Leonard Nimoy and in search of right. that. Yeah, you know, we were we were so, hey, uh, we need to um, uh, find Atlantis. It has to be Atlantis. And anything that was a sunken island, a sunken anything, it relates to Atlantis. But in reality, what we're talking about is a large uh, global civilization. Their shorelines, I mean, if we were, it would be ludicrous for us to think of Las Vegas as our shoreline. You know, if Las Vegas was on the Pacific, and if Ohio was the Atlantic, and we were to say, you know, if you went out to where New York is supposed to be and started, uh, uh, you know, underwater marine archaeology, you would find a massive city there. People would think you're nuts. And if the coastline was Vegas and you were to say, oh, there was a legendary civilization of Los Angeles. Sounds hilarious. And that's exactly what's happened with Doggerland between Scotland and Ireland and France and what's happened off of uh, New Zealand and Indonesia and Jakarta, the Jakarta Pyramid. And there is just a massive amount of land, including this mysterious 2,300 foot deep city off the coast of Cuba. All of it indicates uh, that there was a large global pyramid building cymatic. And what I mean by pyramid, I don't mean little mud bricks. I mean, large cyclopean, uh, well laser cut, they're not laser cut, but for the description, polygonal cymatic energy frequency, whether it's a pyramid or a polygonal building or, uh, I, I, you know, everything's a temple in dynastic times. But mm -hmm. this was a large global population. And why they wouldn't be, we have these dolmens that really appear to be super uber ultra weathered, well, indigenous and local, I mean, think Druids in England, you know, there were stones that are found like at Stonehenge that are very ancient and mm -hmm. societies in the last four, 6,000 years that went, oh, let's do that. And then they found the quarries that weren't really that far away. And they're like, we can do that. It's the same thing on Easter Island. The oldest Moai, the oldest Easter Island heads are the most complex and they're built out of the hardest stone. There's about 150 of them. They are very, very, very well done. Three of them, got taken off the island by the British Museum. 
But then later, some of the other Moai, which are still impressive, they were carved out of softer stone. And so you have another society coming along. On an island, by the way, Easter Island has polygonal walls, just like on all the pyramids. Mm -hmm. uh, so only the foundations are left and it has a stone sphere. There's a stone sphere, which all of it relates to this giant ancient high-tech ancient human past. And what, we're, what we have now is land masses that maybe the Grand Canyon you could look at as more of a vacation location. <laughs> you know, you can live where you want, you can go where you want. The reality is, okay, are they, um, are, are they there um, enjoying um, just living on the river, having access to what could be? Uh, there is more conversation that there's tunnel systems that run into Mexico, that run up to Las Vegas and Yucca Mountain, that there is a vast network that on one hand, a lot of people like to get excited that says, hey, there's this vast tunnel network and it has to do with aliens and it has to do with the military and there's a bunch of crazy stuff going on underground. Uh, that's all hearsay and, and it's great. You know, we should, we should always have a dialogue and we should always speculate. Super, super good with that. But what we do know is that there was a very advanced society here for a very long time that understood that there were some things that no matter what their technology level was at, I think we've had such a time on the planet. Like when you looked at the when Sanskrit, when you look at all the Hindu writings and you see that they're talking about humanity being here for millions of years mm -hmm. and we give the Bible a lot of credit and a lot of archaeologists, Western archaeologists go, oh, look, you know, we found this and we found that and it all corresponds to biblical literature. And then, you know, we look at Eastern stuff and we say, ah, well, you know, that stuff isn't real. You know, over half the planet believes in stuff that doesn't involve Christianity. And so why do we give, you know, as Westerners, we automatically kind of kind of shrug off the Hindu scripts, which are invaluable. They are absolutely important and they indicate a timeline and a story that even if we use it as a dividing rod into our past, the reality is that they are describing the exact human occupation that we keep finding, that Michael Cremo writes about, the anatomically correct humans that we keep finding. Everything keeps getting pushed back with sedimentary DNA research. So it brings us again full circle to uh, is it possible that ancient, ancient advanced humans were planning for disasters and had massive networks of underground tunnels because a good portion of the time that they've lived over hundreds of thousands or 50 or tens of thousands or millions of years, which is every word coming out of my mouth is like a rabbit hole dialogue that we could just chat with on, but, and it's, and it makes people nervous. So if we just stick with, we have a society that's planning to be prepared for something to go wrong at X number of years ago. The reality is that we have um, a uh, yeah, basically we have these opportunities to just table a dialogue with ourselves and our history and say, look, somebody cut these giant six story warehouses above this, you know, underground. Mm -hmm. And if the GE Kincaid cave, if the, if even if it's a story, but if it's really pointing to cave systems that do connect to larger cave systems that are not natural or have been so weathered over time, the indications of them being rock cut are are, are going to need higher tech equipment. Uh, 
and, and yes, is it possible that this has been hidden from us? Yeah, it is. But we have to move ahead anyway. You know, we, we have to move ahead and look at this and just give it a shot. Well, you know, when you talk about, um, like back, back to Grand Canyon, when you're talking about the cave and, and the water levels, it makes a lot of sense. Because if you remember the story of, of the people that were uh, doing the rafting down, down the river and they saw the cave up on the wall, they were like, well, why would somebody build a cave in such an inaccessible location? Well, like you say, so many, you know, so many years ago, that wasn't an inaccessible location because the water levels were up higher. Yeah, and that, that's why, and, you know, there were lots of miners uh, during the gold rush mm -hmm. that decided, okay, well, you know, if everybody's going to California, there were miners mm -hmm. uh, that have always looked for mineral deposits in the Grand Canyon. Mm -hmm. So you have artificial, uh, you have Guano Point, which uh, there's a great story behind Guano. So if you go to the South Rim, so if you go to Vegas, most people go to Vegas, you drive two and a half hours, two hours and you end up where the skywalk is, you know, you can, this, sure. the, you can walk out on that giant engineered loop and look down and um, yeah, the drops like 5,000 feet. But if it makes you feel better for those who hate heights, you get to stand on a glass panel and your first knockoff point is 2,300 feet below the glass. So, you know, you can see down to the 5,000 you know, foot point, but if you fell through the glass, you'd only fall 2,300 feet. That's all. No problem. But yeah, you know, that's just if, you know, you're worried about heights and that <laughs> south, so, yeah, so that south rim has a couple different points that you can stop at on their tour. And one of them is Guano Point. And it was a, it was even featured in a movie, a murder mystery movie. Uh, uh, and before the cable car, it actually had a mining tower and a cable car that uh, would travel across the entire length of the canyon and would run miners 24 hours a day because they found a cave, a massive cave that had bat guano in it enough that they thought that they could mine it for hundreds of millions of dollars. The irony is, is that although bat guano is used for a lot of things, the cave, mm -hmm. ultimately they overestimated, they figured the cave had 15 to 25 million, uh, which is, we're talking, this is, you know, fifties and sixties. So this is a long time ago. And it, you know, very valuable. However, a fighter jet, the story goes, I mean, this is the, this is the actual, what okay. allegedly happened is Air Force jet clips the cable car, uh, clips the wire. So the wire has to come down and the company said it was too expensive to repair the cable wire. So they decided to stop mining. So Guano Point uh, the conspiracy goes that I just say it to get it off the table for everyone listening. Oh. Uh, the The conspiracy is uh, that Guano Point was actually a cover story for the Smithsonian to take out all the Egyptian and the artifacts and the things that they were finding in that Guano Point Cave is one of the locations of ancient advanced artifacts and or uh, at least dynastic period um, ruins. So that the Egyptians, because one of the theories like Dave Brody's theory is that Mark Antony and Cleopatra had a kid and 
it is, there's some documentation that says that that child left as a young adult, left with a army, left with maybe up to 50,000 people, as little as five to 8,000, that they came to America. They ultimately made it to the Grand Canyon, and that's actually possibly one of the ending points for this Egyptian civilization. And that, and again, these are the exciting, let your mind run wild. And those are fun places to go when you're trying not to like snooze off as we get too technical and serious at the same (laughs) time. It's like, Holy crap. What if that part's real? Interesting. Interesting. I just think this is all fascinating. And then I keep thinking about the caves. You keep talking about these caves that are, um, I have a contact that's bad right now too. It's one of those days. I keep thinking about these caves that, that, that you say are man-made. How long, like, like, like for the one that, that, that you would like to go into, how long do you think it would take them to do that, to create that cave? So one of the, one of the technical issues with climbing in that area, it, it kind of lends to the same question, which is um, it, a lot of it is really soft. Um, okay. Not like sandstone, but it's soft. So depending on the layer and the set, it's very, the, 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 ge- the geology of the Grand Canyon over the hundreds of miles that it is, is pretty complex. And depending on the layer that you're in, uh, it could be very easy or it could be like Marble Canyon's Marble Canyon because some of it is quite, it's very steep rock faced. Mm-hmm. It's actually basically like a marble. It's very hard stone. Uh, it's not going to be easy to cut, but then that's only certain faces and locations where you have some of the geology where I don't think it would be very hard in reference to anything else that you've ever seen dug or built in Egypt. And I'm not talking the diorite basalt. I'm not talking about the, the really complex stuff that again, the, the older you go in Egypt, the more hard, the more polished, the more complex built yet we're supposed to believe that, well, you know, you start primitive and you get advanced, but that's, that's nothing that we see in Egypt. And it's not what we see in a lot of locations, or we see such a length of time of antiquity that again, a culture comes along and says, I can build, I can build Easter Island heads. And suddenly they're building not in basalt, they're building in some sort of lava, some, you know, they're building in a softer rock or the same thing at Gobekli Tepe, where, you know, they're all excited to call it the first, this, the first, that, well, no, there's other things that are as old or older. And at the same time, again, are we really crediting it to the same culture that built these large megalithic pillars that then gave up and then they built like river rock for the walls between the pillars? I mean, that, that doesn't look like the same group of people. Right. And those are some commonsensical things where you get into the Grand Canyon and you have um, there are different locations where you can go look at Pueblo or you can go look at some of the rock dwellings that are mud brick or they're built out of river rock. They're built out of just whatever you could find. And that's not uh, a high tech item. That's a, that's a, that's just dynastic. It doesn't matter. You know, it gets confusing in America. We talk about indigenous peoples Mm -hmm. because, it all goes back to this assumption that no one was here, but indigenous peoples. And they all walked across a freezing land bridge in the Bering Straits. And that is just not the genetic makeup of America. We have natives that uh, have Phoenician blood. We have natives that have 
other blood we know of blue blonde haired blue eyed native americans um there there's just no going around it we have the dna wrong and, and therefore the story of who is here in this continent wrong i mean from the very get-go not mm -hmm. to mention the lidar scans i mean we talked early on about the guatemalan lidar scans mm -hmm. and you know 15 20 million plus people where they i mean i can remember a day when they said everyone comes down the land bridge and then uh five to six million people occupied from canada to argentina and they built everything we find five to six million people i mean it's like no one would have a day off. I mean, if right. everyone had to have been building shit, uh, that's just what would have been going anyway. So that that's just not realistic. So we have, um, I guess I am drifting on this one, aren't I? Real no, me back. No, no. Why? 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 Why do you say that? No, I can't really because we were we were specifically. I'm trying to stay on topic on the. Uh, you no, asked we're talking point. about how long it would take to to build a cave, but. I can so, see what so, you're saying because because when you look at even when you look at land you know, ground when you know, when they take a cut you can see the different centuries in the ground so it makes sense to me that diff, different different people would come in okay so and so built this to a certain point so so somebody else comes in and builds and, and builds on top of that you know and builds onto that and then, yeah. then it gets extended 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 or am I missing the point? So. Hey, uh, <laughs> Let, let me know if I slow you down at all, okay? Hey, I'm good. I wanted to, I wanted to correct the color here for a second. If I, I don't know if I look. Oh, that's fine. No, that's fine. Clear, clear color now. I'm just saying because uh, that, 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 that's what I'm getting from what you're saying is that okay, jo, like jo, Joe Native comes in and starts doing this, and then he finally dies off, and then the next generation comes in, builds on top of that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, right. And one of the things that we take for granted is that there's a continuous uh, occupation or a continuous occupation nearby. What if it laid abandoned for 100 years or 500 years? Or sure. look at Stonehenge. When did they stop mm -hmm. using Stonehenge? Right. When did it become a thing to just, you know, not even camp at just to, oh, look, there's stones on the hill or forget that the hill was even there? I mean, the sands of populations, they shift so rapidly. I mean, you know, hundreds of years. But mm -hmm. when we look at the length of time of occupation between what was likely a much more advanced society and the its decayed remnants being reduced to just the large megalithic dolmens or standing stones or meniers. Um, I mean, there's a million different ways to say giant. For the ones that were not built by mimicking cultures we're talking mm -hmm. about think of them as large support columns from superstructures of advanced buildings that you know they were the only things left mm -hmm. i they're really big they're really hard to move and then eventually when the, we, you know if you only have a pile of 10 of them left uh you mm -hmm. can put a lot of meaning into them you know people know how to make circles that's easy yeah i mean kind of but the, what we have with the rock cut ruins i mean i've seen the, the question, uh, this is actually a great, you bring up, you conjure up a great image. And the image is thousands of loincloth people banging with ball, diorite balls, according to Egyptologists, you know, banging with other hard rocks or copper chisels or abrasive. They're just making stuff up and they're banging 
uh, at walls and creating these cave systems. And some of the cave systems that I've been looking at exploring, they're, they're multi-stories. So did they have multiple floors? I mean, six mm -hmm. stories, like six-story warehouses. Uh, are these spaces actually, you know, they've lost the wood interiors uh, or, or their floors, you know? Right. Some of these cave systems that I am have privileged to do some research on already, th these are systems that are thousands of years old. They're human um, spaces of shelter or uh, living. They're no different than what Buzz Aldrin was invited to come visit with Eric Von Danigan down in Bolivia and those cave systems that are so complex, they go in them and the only commentary is that these had to be cut with lasers or they're, you know, they're so polished and they're so finely done. Well, why? Unless again, the surface becomes uninhabitable, uh, mm -hmm. war, you're dealing with on a high energy frequency society. So, you know, one minute we're talking, the next minute we evaporate. I mean, the reality is you don't see scalar weapons. You don't see high frequency energy beams coming at you. Uh, it's one of the big fallacies of sci-fi movies is you're not going to see a blaster light. You're not going to see it travel. It's just light travels too fast. You know, we're not going to see uh, a, a light beam hit. You know, it's not, just like you don't see a bullet really, you know, you can see tracer rounds, but it's the same thing. But as far as lasers go, you're not going to, you're not going to see it. But if it's a sound wave, if it's just like a microwave from your microwave, right. I mean, one minute we're standing there, the next minute it's horrifying. We're shadows on a building and it's not even nuclear. So if you're underground, if you're constantly underground, it might, you we, we could argue that it's not all natural disaster or that, you know, and again, it doesn't have to be conflict or war or military intervention, mm -hmm. but the reality is these, these tunnel systems, these really tunnel sounds conjures up guys with mining carts and white, you know, little lights on their hats and, or, or, you know, like world war two movies and bunkers. We need to think of these as more as uh, uh, sub level constructions and highways and, we need to look. We we need to consider them more as underground cityscapes, and they've been so abandoned for so long. And to your point, adapted mm -hmm. by other cultures, or abandoned and then adapted and then adapted again, mm -hmm. and then every generation of somebody creates a tradition. They create uh, some sort of a, a a system of of beliefs that cause traditions that end up costing uh, the space, again, more of its original features or things that didn't seem practical or useful. Like, mm -hmm. What would anyone know what to do with a solid state hard drive if they didn't recognize what a solid state hard drive was right. as made strictly out of crystals and, uh, you know, when <laughs> it'd be completely useless. So we're, we are looking for cave entrances. We're looking for uh, rock cut ruins. And, you know, for those that are out there for disinformation and making straw man arguments, it'll be, oh, you know, indigenous people did that or it'll never be Romans or I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, it would be easier to say it's I mean, if they had to, uh, they could say, OK, fine, the Egyptians were there, but it wasn't an advanced ancient culture and it wasn't humans. You know, it's easier. The biggest deflection for us is that it's aliens, because who wants to think that our own relatives are actually not helping us out, <laughs> you know, right. 
know, I bring it up before, but it's like, who, who wants to know that, you know, the saucer lands and says, look, I'm your great, 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 great uncle. And uh, yeah, uh, you know, we didn't, we didn't leave the bunker door open long enough. And we left you and great, 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 great times a thousand grandma out on the, uh, out on the great plains with Denise Van and Neanderthals and everybody mm -hmm. else. And that other mystery 12% human race that we're made of. And, and well, you know, we had to get underground. We didn't know you guys would be there at the end, but you were, and sorry. And we tried to give you religion once that didn't go over good. Sorry about that. And then, you know, at, at the end of the day, we're talking, at the end of the day, we're talking, we're, we're talking about a, a group of uh, people that may have, maybe they're not nefarious. Maybe it's not crappy reasons, but well, mm -hmm. they are crappy reasons. They're just not evil reasons. They're not, they're not trying to be malicious at this point, but again, we're, we're speculating about UFOs that we are consistently seeing mm -hmm. and they're not military. Even the ones that, you know, even if we can explain some of the ones that are military, they're not all military. And so are they from somewhere else or based on what we keep finding and what's clearly written into our genes? There's just like a million places and things that we can look at and talk about and say, there's a lot of technology that we're a part of and either everyone in the past got wiped out or a few of those users remembered or knew of the technologies. And it took them maybe a very long time to build back a very smaller portion of their population to then use that technology again, to which they call this place home like we do. Right. But it, you know, it's a big planet. It's easy to hide. Well, that was my question because you talk about the some of these caves being laser cut. I mean, what would it take back in the ancient times to create a laser like that? Well, yeah, and the laser cut part is just a descriptor. Uh, that's what's interesting. There's sound and resonance that can cut stone okay. uh, vibrationally. And at the same time, one of our greatest references on this is uh, Flinders Petrie. Uh, the great Egyptologist who is lamenting at the beginning of what is the industrial revolution. And I've been rereading some of his field notes and his works. And what you have is the, the core drills out of Egypt. And this is the, uh, one of the very famous core drills is one that Christopher Dunn looked at. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it, it was try, it, they tried to debunk it. It's so rude the way they did it, but this is somebody took a machine and they took a core drill. So what they did was they put it up against, uh, they're putting it up against a wall and they need to drill a, a hole through it to like run a tube or something. So they, they run this core drill. So it, it ends up taking out a cylinder tube of the interior. Here's what's interesting about it. And Flinders noted this being problematic to what they were saying of Egyptian culture and things like these two drills and striations on rocks have been found all over the world. So we could talk about the diameter, the width of this like ancient quarries. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a lot of different things that we can talk about that this relates to, but the core drill, this one's very famous. The Flinders uh, core drill analysis showed that on the core, there is a spin. Uh, well, basically, the revolutions can be seen of the device that would have cut that core out of the rock that it was cutting into. And what's interesting about that is to this day, we don't 
have any drills that can drill. It's it's it runs about 500 times faster than anything that we have today. So they can figure that out. This is the deceptive part. There was a there was a mainstream one of the one of the cable channels had it where they said, "Oh, look, 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 you know, we we looked at the core drill and it it really wasn't continuous and that that was disingenuous. It was the way they angled it, the camera. Uh Christopher Dunn, uh, author and engineer, you know, he actually he got samples off of it and Flinders work is impeccable, but it shows a continuous, somebody put a machine that could, mm. without getting too hot, without needing to be too wet, was able to, at 500 times faster, anything we can do, popped a drill, popped a machine boring bit into this block and popped out this core like it was nothing. And there are indications like that. So when we say laser cut, that's a description we understand. But the polygonal walls, the core drills, the slicing uh, in, in old quarries, truly, truly ancient quarries have a diameters of the blades that are half the size. Our smallest blades are about a quarter, the not even a quarter in inch, but mm -hmm. the, the holes, the, the cut, the, like where they stop with a cut, or polish or machine marks left mm -hmm. in some of the ancient boxes. I thank God they've stopped calling them sarcophaguses. They've at least, they're just micro advancements in Egyptology and modern archeology. span And one of them is to finally look at the Osirion and all these, you know, you go to the Egyptian museum and they've stopped calling some of them sarcophaguses and just started calling them boxes or unfinished boxes. And that's good because there are there is one famously tucked in the corner that Brian Forster likes to point out. He has a couple of videos on it where mm -hmm. you can see the machining where the machining stopped where they were where they were doing the polishing right. and you can you can actually you can actually see that. Wow. So th those are those are really fun things but they all show a level of engineering in the machines that would be mm -hmm. being run on these uh, materials that we don't have. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're not just talking lasers, we're talking sonic frequency energy cutting devices that are doing precision work that we don't currently have the ability to mimic. We can't even copy it. We can't even, I don't know of anyone and including I've been able to work with Christopher, you know, talk to Christopher Dunn, mm -hmm. uh, and besides reading his work, and there isn't anything on the table. I've, I I work with a couple. I've been he's he's a retired machinist. I've been working with a couple machinists that I have here locally available to me. And again, trying to navigate uh, the machine quality work that's been put into some of these things. And it's not just the core drills or the tunnel systems, it's the level of polishing that's on the block. It doesn't, there, there are different ways to polish. Like when you have a granite mm -hmm. countertop, you use 12 pads. Mm -hmm. Every pad, you cannot skip a pad. And, right. and, and so the, a lot of people don't know that. So your granite countertops, someone on the flat surface is done by machine. But when they cut the edges for you guys out there that have that edge, there are two men usually, two, two people that run around with the 12, the 11, the 10, the nine, the eight, the seven, the six, the five, the four to three, they go all the way down to the last pad or vice versa to 12. And what they do is they polish each side and they work their way around each one with the other pad to do the angled edges. And, and the reason that's important is because the polishing is so fine 
that if you skip one pad, you won't do the surface right. And it's so, 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 so microscopically, nanally minimal that with your hand, you'd be like, well, I, I think the 12 pad did really good. Let's skip to 10. Okay. And you cannot do it. You have to use all the pads. And so we have some ideas, water jet cutters that a lot of granite and stone uh, is cut for your counters and for your vanities, et cetera, or for bowls and bowl sinks. They're cut with water jet cutters. That water is cutting these stones. I mean, precision cutting uh, a line that can, you know, you could run your hand along a rough edge and actually cut your finger. And these are being done with water. But the precision and smoothness and the quality of the finishes and in the Serapium, like in Egypt, uh, uh, Yusuf Awan has pointed out the uh, appears to be like an epoxy chemical that, again, no material testing has been done on this. And this is uh, a finish. And the question is, well, how many things have either lost their finish because it's been worn out mm -hmm. and how much of it is still in joinery on polygonal buildings? All this material science is open for us. And it's all uh, in this revolution of uh, uh, sciences and archaeology. There are a lot of new young archaeologists. And these are those questions that we need answered. We need material scientists. We need physicists. We need machinists. Uh, an anthropologist is not who we need to tell us we have another temple. And yes, there was likely another temple. And to your point earlier, the last hundred years, the last thousand years, the last 2000 years, the abandoned period with the other people coming in and going, we're going to make it our temple. It's mm -hmm. no longer the temple of the chicken. It's the temple of the cow. Right. I mean, there's always, there, there's always a temple and those are all, all periods of human history, I think are related and they are tied together. So they, they're all important, but we are trying to search and rescue our, why do we have these superhuman genes? Why do we have weird cuts in biologies of plants and animals that, why do we have ancient cuts in our own genes? And why, why are people like Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen uh, talking about reactivating superhuman abilities and controlling your inflammatory response and controlling your heating and cooling? And these are things that were everyday things, maybe 100,000 or 80,000 or 70,000 or even 60,000 years ago. And now they're things we can't do. And, mm -hmm. you know, we need Tylenol. We need we need to take uh, quite necessarily we we've developed some great remedies and medicines and practices with pharmaceuticals. But at the same time, they're substituting for these superhuman abilities that might just be self-healing. Mm -hmm. you, know, you know, so th those are some of the reasons we need to go at this as a search and rescue. Our history isn't just about, hey, well, you know, these dynastic people for a thousand years worship snakes. Yeah, but a hundred thousand years ago, they flew on snakes. Just totally making that up. Yeah. But, you know, when, you know, it's like, I knew the dragon thing was real, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did, like I said, what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense there's a lot of logic to it because I know a lot of people do have that trouble wrapping their head around the fact that it's not aliens that, that, that showed people how to do stuff, you know, that it came from our own brains it, it, over the centuries. It makes a lot of sense. Even Easter Island, when you think about Easter Island, because I mean, who'd have figured until what, if just a few years ago that there were full bodies under there, there was what, you know, with, with the heads being there, and the oh, yeah, yeah. Is the there's bodies. bodies under there. Who'd have figured that was going to be like that? 
and maybe it goes back to what you're talking about too that okay somebody started building the bases on these things right and, and then and then as the years went by they kept building up on them yeah and and what's interesting is thor Heyerdahl was one of the first people to excavate them fully and then uh uh the the gal who's in charge of the Easter Island Preservation Society mm -hmm. is out of Berkeley, and I am I'm so sorry. It's I literally wrote about her, and I can't remember her name right now. But the what's important is they did uh, that you won't believe this, but they did serious, completely monitored uh, scientific work on a uh, less than I mean it's, it's like three have ever actually been fully excavated in, in the highest, uh, most scientific methodologies. And then to preserve them, they buried them again. And here's the other thing. They're not all buried. It's on one side of the island. And Robert Schock, Dr. Robert Schock and a number of people have some ideas about they're the volcanic side where, uh, you know, at first it was, oh, Easter Island was part of the same deluge, you know, mm -hmm. i.e. biblical flood, either Younger Dryas or Mount Toba, you know, 75,000 years ago, super volcano turns nuclear winter winter for Earth. And that the the tidal effects, uh, that's when the mud came and buried some of the heads. However, one of the theories is that it's actually slough off, that they sat there for so long unused that the slough off from the side, just the, the earth built up around them. And so they sure. that covered, and it's not all of them. There's about a thousand. The number seems to go up and down by a hundred. I don't know if they come and go from the island, but the the there's only uh there's only a couple hundred that are buried. And but of those, if you unbury them, aren't you then at the starting point and then you right. want to dig below to find the soil, the science, right. and right. what would be the society that was there. But if they're buried 60 feet and you don't unbury them, then well, the entire village and everything that, or, or town, everything you'd be looking for is 60 feet plus down. Uh -huh. and, and so none of that is done. And, and the thing with Easter Island is you have polygonal construction on the, like a lot of the bases. I mean, it's the same complex polygonal design that you see at, from Machu Picchu to the Great Pyramids. So it's the same polygonal work and the giant stone spheres, the most sacred thing on Rapa Nui on Easter Island is a stone sphere. That's the most sacred thing. And there are stone spheres from Costa Rica to the uh, Russian Arctic. And again, they're, 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 you know, the, the theory went, oh, well, if you're an important person, they, they really went through the effort of forming one of these spheres. Mm -hmm. Well, the spheres a lot there are their natural concretions. That's the other excuse. But in we don't have any actual evidence that volcanoes made them and two uh we haven't had any serious material science checks on them because what they appear to be uh, based on other studies that even a report that was released by some scientists before my book came out mm -hmm. uh it's not aliens was the uh report that they were seismic metamaterials that these were wave resonators they were these stone spheres were meant to be placed under not one building, but over whole city complexes that underground that these, these would act as either to propagate a wave, mute a wave, cancel a wave, that these stone spheres were able to vibrate and cancel or promote the right frequencies. And they're all over the earth. They're in China. They're in New Zealand. They're in Bosnia. There's one in Bosnia that's 64 tons. I mean, so I they're just they don't 
at all appear to be natural concretions, but it, it's part of this worldwide network, this co collective, this connective society that now we are, um, again, we're getting more open to, but it's still a default to go to, you know, it's aliens or right. uh, Atlanteans, or we're, we're stuck in these paradigms still, rather than just, again, if you just table all the facts, not just the ones that you want to table to fit theories, all the facts indicate we missed a very complex worldwide uh, occupation of humanity. Not, not anyone from anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that there weren't anthropologists from space 100,000 years ago, but to negate the entire complexity of human civilization and the arrogance and hubris of it when, you know, the early on, so it's been, I can't believe it, we're all in this time warp, but it's mm -hmm. been, it's, it's closer to two and a half years that the Guatemalan LIDAR scans, you know, they're doing a 5,000 kilometer or 5,000 square mile. Well, it's not really square, it's a rectangle. And in the world of Guatemala, you know, Guatemala in here, eh, Guatemala is fairly large. Uh, and I guess proportionally for the sake of the video, I'm going to say an area in Guatemala that, you know, it doesn't look that big, but it's 5,000 or yeah, it's 5,000 square miles. They're doing LIDAR. They had only completed 800 square miles of that 5,000 square miles when they published that, yeah, we found 40,000 plus buildings, hundreds of skyscraper pyramids. They're all buried in the jungle. And my biggest point in It's Not Aliens, It's Us is about engineered soil. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly make national, international headlines with the Guatemalan find. And they say, wow, it appears that we've grossly underestimated South and Central American populations. Just from the Guatemalan scan, they're saying there could have been 15, 20 million people now in that area. That's just from that scan. If we're being realistic, there, when we were deforesting, not that it stopped, but when we started clearing what was supposed to be virgin South American rainforest. And we're going to get back to Rapa Nui for one more point, by the way, uh, particularly about genetics and the people that were there when you were talking about that. Um, but when it comes to uh, describing uh, the amount of human humanity that could be on this planet, we have to understand that 8 billion people right now would fit in about two and a half Texases. That's it. That's if you gave them an acre each. Every human being on it, we already know, we're, we're, for those that are passionate about uh, feeding the world, America makes enough food to feed everybody, and we can still all end up at the gym and getting fat, whatever. I mean, we, we, we don't have enough to all eat bullion and soup. I mean, we literally have enough to feed the whole world, just this one country, right? Mm -hmm. But if we gave everybody an acre, they'd fit in about two and a half Texases, that should explain to people exactly how unoccupied the planet is. And more importantly, we discover, get your head around this as you're trying to get your head around that, is there is as many species, three to 5,000 new species are discovered annually in the last 40 years as we've been keeping track. We just discovered a giant otter that we thought was extinct. It's the size of a seal and it just got oh. noticed 
in, in South America. And the reality then is, what does this represent? I think, I think one of the things that we all have to get our heads around is that if you put everybody in a multi-story or an underground living environment, and you look at the rainforest and realize that underneath those, what was supposed to be virgin forests are earth mound and or human occupation centers. And that there is engineered ancient soil like Amazonian dark earths, which are called terra preta or Amazonian dark earths. They're man-made, but they're in Africa. They're in, uh, they're all over the world, these engineered soils. And they're not just for growing, they're for connecting electromagnetic properties. They're for uh, filtering heavy metals and carbon dioxide. If you stuck everyone in multi-story underground constructions and the earth was a giant playground and we were all connected through a collective consciousness and through genetic abilities like synesthesia, which we've touched on before, uh -huh. but all of it together uh, points to, I think, a much larger human population that was here. And again, we're talking about land masses that are underwater. So there was even more land and coastlines that could be the New York of their day, but they're mm -hmm. underwater. And so what I was gonna say about Rapa Nui, Easter Island, the very first explorers said, <laughs> it's so funny, their accounts were considered uh, fiction. Their initial, mind you, the earliest explorers to South America and Central America, their earliest, uh, the earliest conquistador, the earliest explorers, their accounts were considered uh, fabricated also because of, they said they saw tens and tens of thousands of people living in cities that were much larger than uh, Paris at the time and uh, super highways, et cetera, et cetera, but all being found by the LIDAR scans now. But uh, on Rapa Nui, the earliest accounts said that there were people there of all races, mm -hmm. blonde-haired, blue-eyed, uh, to Asiatic and that there were also people there that were very, very tall, very uh, gigantic, the giants, the way they described it. So I'm thinking more like seven, eight, nine feet is what they were saying, but yeah. not like lumbering around Zentrani Auto Robotech for those nerds out there. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't used that reference ever, but yeah. So we have these accounts that were shirked off and said, yeah, well, that that's just not true. You know, it's just a bunch of islanders, you know, South Pacific islanders. And there's no way there was blonde haired, blue eyed people there right. uh, at that point. No, that's that's not possible. But well, it's it's genetically speaking, the elephant in the room, which is now starting to charge is nuclear sedimentary DNA testing. Uh, and, you know, we've chatted on it, but it's, it's exciting because you can't wiggle out of it now. You don't need a tooth you can start testing genetic evidences from even these sedimentary remains. Mm -hmm. And that's an animal that's going to have to put a lot of dinosaurs that are still in academic uh, robes, uh, hopefully into retirement or just, mm -hmm. you know, again, I think it's exciting to be wrong and to be able to table the new evidences and build a new story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a narrative that I think can be controlled anymore. Well, you know, um, when you talk about genetics, and I, and I, I know this for a fact. I, I had a Spanish teacher in high school who was blonde-haired, blue-eyed, and she had come from Ecuador. You know, so so it, it makes sense. I mean, we're not talking Argentina, where maybe the you know maybe the Germans ended up there or whatever. I mean, this is in the middle of South America, where 
where this gal comes from. You know, she's blonde hair, blue eyed. Yeah, and I know there's a couple there's a couple different origins for that. I'm I'm not recalling one one of them. There's a story of uh, of a group that ended up in South America. The reason they were blonde haired, blue eyed, and I'm trying to remember which group it was and why they were left there. And it was in the 1700s or 1600s. And then there were early accounts also again of blonde haired, blue eyed people there. That again, we have Amphora Bay. Mm-hmm. So. It's called Amphora Bay because, again, only the Portuguese were supposed to find Brazil. And I I wrote about this extensively in a section of my book. And the issue is uh, Romans, you know, they tried to say, oh, uh, if it ever even happened, that a Roman ship kind of blew off course. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not true. Amphora Bay is filled with Roman vases, shipping vases. So it's pretty clear also in Egyptian, we've had, you know, the Germans had studied that one mummy. We we're talking about marijuana and cocaine mm-hmm. and assorted other tobacco. There are things that were strictly from America, well, South Central, uh, this side of the pond, and they're showing up for the Egyptians. And the Romans, uh, not one, the amphoras that are in that bay either came off of the largest Roman galleon ever, or there was just a significantly managed trade route to Brazil from Rome, from the Mediterranean, from Africa, that there were established trade routes to the Americas and Amphora Bay is filled with these Roman vessels. Uh, uh, literally not ships, but vases, vessels mm-hmm. of assorted things that uh, at one point, not only will no permits be given to dig, under, this is underwater, of course. It's dangerous. It's underwater work. But at one point, the, the the Brazilian Navy actually, for safety reasons, follow this one, buried the uh, the find physically with sand. They sucked sand up and buried the ship, or at least the area where they would want to do marine archaeology. They buried it further. And this is a... <laughs> This is well uh, reported on. I talk about it extensively, and it it shows that you have an, any number of blue-eyed beauties that could have been on plenty of established trade routes, mm-hmm. staying or living in port in what really was international sea and ferrying and trade uh, in, in South and Central America routes that would account for these blue-eyed people that would predate even these early colonizers mm-hmm. uh, from the 16 or 1700s. Uh, the, the reality is that you have multiple genetic sequences that have to be there. We have linguistics uh, from Mexico to South America that show uh, Chinese named cities. Uh, it, and again, now all the way back to the Grand Canyon, we have again, names that are being, you know, that indigenous are, getting that are strictly Egyptian and speaking. So are they getting them from the Egyptians? Are they getting them from the Romans? Are they getting them from consistent contact? Uh, Was it a Viking that had some contact Uh, early on? Is it just a general knowledge of Latin? I mean, it could be Mm -hmm. even that crazy, but the, the, the reality is that this is way more interesting to uncover than it is to shamefully say, Oh man, we really got it wrong. 
everybody's going to want their money back for their degrees. And I think the opposite approach should be taken. Pull every damn thing that you've thrown in an Indiana Jones crate with the Ark of the Covenant and open up all the boxes and just say, look, we're recruiting fill in the blank number of students to live in this part of the world and that part of the world. And, you know, in this 40,000 structured grid and just, uh, Guatemala, you know, we're going to have satellite campuses. I really want to turn this around and not just make every university a bad guy. But I think the missed opportunity here is instead of saying, oh, you know, we limit who we enroll in our school. It's like, mm -hmm. why don't you brag that you're the biggest, uh, you know, there's only countries that are larger than your school. You know, why, why not be able to say, you know, your doctorate is uh, restoring and figuring out every human history of this one temple. You know, the, the sedimentary flora and fauna remains for the last 100, 200, 300,000 years. Uh, There's so many things that are coming with uh, nanotechnology, this nuclear DNA uh, testing, sedimentary flora, fauna, you know, uh, species. The biology, biolo ancient archaeobiologists are going to have a bla blast uh we don't have a complete fossil record and now we can find it in dust. I mean, that's insane. That's insane. It's, that's it's a good time. Crazy. That's crazy. Jared, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on tonight. It's, it's, so, yeah. it's so fun to talk to you. Oh, I love being on. I hope the fans are having fun. Oh yeah. I learned so much. It's just so fun to talk to you. Got to get you on again. After you do your exploration, that's going to be awesome. Yeah, because this trip, I would love to come back on. I will keep you updated. I'll have pictures from just this preliminary work. I think it's fun to share this with everyone sure. who's interested. So I'll, I'll have stuff for you because then after this, we'll be planning a larger trip, like I said, with uh, climbers and people can bring more equipment. And if, if all we do is can establish that somewhere at the height of those canyons that there are rock cut uh, ruins that uh, predate uh, indigenous or uh, the you know last 12,000 year narrative, uh, yeah, we're after it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we will definitely get you back on. Can't you wait. Have good, you have a good you evening. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Boy, that was fun. I love talking with him. It is just so fun to pick his brain. I just love it. Tomorrow night, uh, we are going to have kind of a change of pace from tonight. We're going to have Lon Strickler on, who's going to be talking about cryptids and monsters. He's done a lot of study into that, so he's going to be on with us tomorrow night. Also, if you want to uh, help me out a little bit to keep some really good shows coming, good shows and guests coming, paypal.me at California Haunts, because uh, my paranormal group is nonprofit and all this is done out of pocket. So if you could do that for me, I'd really appreciate it. Again, paypal.me at California Haunts. And uh, we're going to have Jarrett. You can reach him at notaliens.com. we got to remember we get that in. Also, if you visit my YouTube channel, subscribe over there. The more uh, the more subscriptions I get, the better. I'm talking real fast, I don't know why. Um, and also, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you didn't like the show, share it with five of your enemies. Because it's a great show. I know it. You know it. We all know it. But anyway, thank you guys very much, and I will see you tomorrow with Lon Strickler, okay? Uh, okay, here we go.